London makes deals. For as long as there has been a London, it has been known as a place that makes deals, both open and esoteric, prudent and foolish. Said deals cover a range of subjects, business, political and legal ones. It is the home of litigation, commerce, contract and ambition. A city of ongoing negotiations, where interlocutory dialogue could mix both honest endeavour with fraud and misdirection. London is the city of deals and the city of lies. Towards the end of the reign of King Henry I, that mercurial and most strategic king, London is said to have supposedly made a deal with him, a deal that was incredibly beneficial towards the city. So beneficial was this deal, in fact, so surprisingly generous, that it has caused a bevy of historians to become suspicious towards its providence. They believe the claim that Henry, King of England, placed his name to this obfuscates a deception obvious to all when examined. It's a heck of a historical debate and is the fascinating cornerstone of what is to come this episode. Hi, my name is Saul and I am your host and narrator to The Story of London, a podcast dedicated to telling the history of the city in quite some detail. Each week is supposedly a standalone chapter where you can just listen and enjoy that section, but taken together, it's shaping up to be a mammoth grand narrative, the whole sweeping history of London in detail. We've reached the year 1130, and had just begun in the decade previously to see the signs of something changing in the city. The old, defiant spirit of London. The fury that had seen its residents become bold enough to see themselves as kingmakers, the attitude that had chosen kings of England, irrespective of how the rest of the country felt about it, the defiance that had stared down the likes of William the Conqueror briefly, that seemed to be returning. Not fully, no. London was still a pragmatic place, and they did not stick their neck out when it came to the dynasty of William the Conqueror. But something was building. The town was awash with religious devotion, driven so by a near-hysteric atmosphere caused by the spate of miracles taking place up in the new church of St. Bartholomew's in Smithfield. And because of this, London seemed to be clearly finding greater agency. So we have a chapter this week focused upon the next few years, a time of great calamity, new legal disputes, a weird hermit, and his rather surprising effect on modern London tourism, your narrator intending to clear the name of a minor but important historical figure from London's past who's been unjustly accused of an accidental arson, but more than anything else, this chapter is about London beginning to push against the restraints that had held its voice down, culminating with them supposedly making one hell of a deal with the ageing king. Welcome then to chapter 61 of the story of London, The Golden Deal.
as we move on in the story of London, at the heart of all that I do in this podcast is me trying to explain local news from the time to a modern audience. I mean, sometimes, often, this necessitates me explaining wider geopolitical context, trying to allow us understand why such an event was big news. But in the end, it's about bringing to life the local stuff. Between the years 1130 and 1135, London was busy getting on with life. And following the theme I've been developing over the last few episodes, it was rapidly beginning to exercise long-lost muscles of pride and self-governance. The news and gossip that London was focused upon at the time seemed to suggest no matter what was going on across the rest of the nation, the object of Londoners' attention was always going to be the arguments and disputes off London. There is a wonderful example from 1134, a little story that warms the cockles of my cold and cynical historian's heart. So if you can remember, way back in a previous episode, I said that Henry I had married the formidable and utterly brilliant Queen Matilda, aka Wee Edith of Scotland, and she had been the first royal personage to have spent most of their time being based, kind of permanently, in Westminster. While, you know, Henry I was going off and having way too much fun rampaging over Normandy. Alas, Queen Matilda had died in the year 1118. Apparently, Queen Matilda had three ladies-in-waiting who worked for her. Women called Emma, Gunilda and Christina. Now, with the death of the Queen, the three former ladies-in-waiting, one would assume could remain in court serving the royal household in a different way. But after the death of his firstborn son, Prince William, in the White Ship disaster, the king decided to marry a much younger second wife. And for whatever reason, the three former ladies-in-waiting of his first wife decided they wished to retire somewhere quiet. And with that set up, now we need to talk about a hermit called Godwin. Apparently, around London, there was to be found a large number of men of great faith and devotion, drawn to a city whose faith in Christ was strong and had burned in ferocious intensity ever since the 900s when the likes of the Wolf Bishop lived upon its streets. Now, these men of great faith and devotion were somewhat odd, shall we say. I suppose you would today call them religious nutters if you were feeling uncharitable. In some ways, they are the forebears of that most wonderful quirky of London sights. Anyone who walks the main thoroughfares of London will see those single preachers endlessly extolling the crowds of shoppers and tourists about how they're failing to heed this person's personal vision of the word of God. We often see such people and consider them some new phenomena. They're not. Those individuals who felt the need to worship God in their own way and tell everybody about it, they existed back here in the 12th century, in numbers, and it was commented upon just how many lived around London. Of course, they didn't always play well with other kids because, you know, religious nutters. Anyway, the polite term for such men was hermit. The hermits around London were well known, and in nearby future times, we have descriptions of barefoot individuals with long matted hair and prone to wild ravings. Godwin, the hermit at the centre of the story, sounds less overtly insane. He lived about three miles north of London, in a small house or structure 
in a very wild area where the old Roman Watling Street crossed a small stream or several small streams, which were known at the time as the Cold Burn or Kale Burn, variations of the term cold water. And these streams became a tributary to the river Westbourne, which then flowed from here down through what is today's Hyde Park before joining the Thames to the south. There was a small hamlet near to this hermit by the stream, and that hamlet was famed for the quality of its oak trees and was known as Chelsea in the Wilderness, a small offshoot of the parish and larger village of Chelsea nearby. And today it is known as Kensal Town. And can I just ask if there's anybody listening from London right now? I think we should start a petition to change the name of Kensal Town back to Chelsea in the Wilderness. As that's an awesome name and should not go to waste. I mean, residents of Kensal Town, reclaim your ancient medieval heritage. Make Chelsea in the Wilderness great again. Yeah, I'll calm down now. Anyway, Godwin the Hermit lived a distance away from the residents of Chelsea in the wilderness and supposedly was convinced the streams around his home were holy and blessed waters with curing properties. And this was treated as a holy and respectable place. And as such, Godwin the Hermit came up with a deal with the abbot of Westminster Abbey, a man called Abbot Herbert who lived a few miles south of him, Godwin would be willing to offer his humble abode to the three former ladies of the court, Emma, Gunhilda and Christina, to live in. Now, before you start thinking anything scandalous or salacious here, dear listener, allow me to say the relationships were entirely respectable. Emma, Gunhilda and Christina were to take holy orders, if they've not done already, and they were to become nuns. And Godwin's small hermitage was to be designated a priory, and Godwin himself was to be named as the priest of said priory. Oh, and a quick moment. I have been asked by a listener to explain what are the differences between a minster, a monastery, an abbey, and a priory. The simplest way to describe it, the name monastery refers to the buildings in which you house monastics. The term monastic is actually gender neutral. So you could and did have monasteries filled with female monastics, a.k.a. nuns. The term minster is an old English variant of the word monastery, but not all minsters remained monasteries. Yeah, anyway, an abbey then is technically a monastic settlement headed by an abbot, and a priory was a smaller monastic settlement, usually under 12 monks or nuns, and headed by a prior. Priories were often set up usually as a spin-off of a larger abbey, and this is what we've just seen. So the Abbey of St. Peter's, the Westminster, established this priory under the Benedictine rule in 1134 or so for the nuns Emma, Gunhilda and Christina, and the now not a hermit but currently a priest, Godwin. All well and good, right? Not at all. See, one of London's biggest issues at the time was decisions made in one year tended to carry on afterwards, as once it's a thing done, it becomes a thing that we always did it like this, and gets rules and regulations about it. And so the moment someone did a thing, someone else would see if that thing was encroaching upon their thing, and then there would be conflict. And that priory just down the road from Chelsea in the wilderness, 
that encroached upon a thing belonging to a man called Gilbert. This Gilbert, however, wasn't just some bloke called Gilbert, however, oh no, his full title was Gilbert Universalis, the Bishop of London, and you have to admit that's one hell of a name. He was a quite respected academic type who had taken over from Bishop Richard Dilbermeers when he died, and Bishop Gilbert Universalis immediately informed Abbot Herbert of Westminster that this new priory, with its three nuns and one former hermit, was located within the jurisdiction of his diocese, and as such, he should be the one appointing any priests. Abbot Herbert was having none of that. It was a Benedictine priory, a scion of his abbey, and don't you be waving your big fancy name at me, Bishop Gilbert. Luckily for everyone, the matter was resolved amicably. It was agreed that Herbert and the later abbots of Westminster would appoint the priest in the priory, and Gilbert Universalis and the later bishops of London would confirm the priests in this job, and thus the priory was allowed to be maintained. And eventually, everyone started calling the priory and the region around it Kilburn, which is where this part of London gets its name from. And the traces of the Priory you see in Kilburn today in the form of the modern streets of Priory Road, Priory Terrace, Kilburn Priory, and above all, Abbey Road. Yes, the Abbey Road. So, allow me to just point out that while the fact the Beatles recorded their last studio album in the EMI Music Studios upon Abbey Road and posed for that iconic photograph of them using the pedestrian crossing across Abbey Road, which has now actually been designated a Grade 2 listed monument, and across said pedestrian crossing, scores of tourists still, to this day, will walk across for their friends to take photos of, I would just like us to take a moment to contemplate the original Fab Four, without whom that street would not be so named, Emma, Gunhilde, Christina, and Godwin the Hermit. Anyway, the purpose of that little story was to illustrate just how important boundary jurisdiction was to Londoners of this time. And there was nothing so easy to get Londoners in a bit of a tiz than encroaching on what they had perceived as theirs. Around 11.30, we see the biggest example of this in this era, a thing which was to cause strong opinions to be voiced. The argument over Portsoken. Portsoken was the then name given to the region of London that had risen up over the last few years just the other side of the eastern city walls, so next to the Tower of London and north of it. Lying as it did just beyond Allgate, Portsoken is what we could happily describe as the first example of the East End of London. Now, it was in Portsoken that the Church of St. Botolf without Allgate, which I mentioned last episode, was located. And just to explain, when we say something is without Allgate, that literally means outside the walls of London, that side of Allgate. So if you listen to the last episode, you may remember I mentioned how St. Botolf without Allgate had been gifted to the rather important Holy Trinity Priory, which had been established by the late Queen Matilda. And you could also remember I mentioned that a small chapel close to the White Tower of London, St. Peter ad Vincula, had been established around the same time, and it was also, like St. Botolph's, in Portsoken. 
And these two churches were about to start a very unique argument, the Port Soken issue. Now what follows is an introduction and very short guide to the start of this. And I'm never going to give a full guide as I don't feel like doing an entire episode about it. So be aware there is much detail I'm missing here. But the argument began about who owned the soak around the church of St. Bartolf without Allgate. Tradition said that when Holy Trinity Priory had taken over St. Bartol's in around 1125, they had seemingly taken control over the soak as well. However, in 1130, the rector of the chapel of St. Peter Ad Vincula began a legal case to claim the rights to the soak, or some of the soak, maintaining that some of these rights had belonged to the constable of the Tower of London, and at that time, this post was still in the hands of the de Mandeville family. For this reason, the rector began his litigation. The prior of Holy Trinity, Allgate, of course, resisted him, and so began legal action between the two. It starts here in 1130. And I'm mentioning it starts now, as simply put, this case is going to become really important over the next few years. We will return to Port Soken in future chapters. Like any complex legal battle, the litigation lasted a while, and as you will discover in future chapters, it was going to become a thing Londoners would feel very strongly about. While this episode has been, and will carry on talking about all things legal, there are two other events that need to be mentioned in the era of 1130 to 1135 that do need highlighting, as they're really important going forward for the city. And the first appears to be another way London was beginning to find its voice. In this case, well, it was a little bit of stress relief. A little bit of a chance to party. Last episode, you may remember I went on at length about the great miracle factory to the north of London, the Church of St. Bartholomew, whose activities were causing great religious fervour and passions within the city itself with its seemingly endless stream of miraculous cures. St. Bart's was growing in status, and the man who founded it, the former courtier Rahiri, suddenly found he had an issue. His success was causing additional costs, and as such, he needed to raise additional funds. And so Rahiri decided the way to raise said funds without seeking donations from the nobility was to apply to the crown for the right to hold a fair. Now, without getting too much into it, a medieval fair was technically a great franchising opportunity for your resident king or high nobility. Someone would pay the king a large sum of money and then have his permission to run a fair. In simplifying the rules here, the purpose of a fair was to allow people, not from your local region, come to your town and sell their wares. As I've described in several previous chapters, the rules and regulations of London, especially around the dock areas by the Thames, denote a city where the selling of goods was strictly regulated. London was a place where Londoners had created the rules so only Londoners could sell their wares to the residents. Sure, items may be coming in from merchants from across England and Europe, but when they got to London, those merchants had to sell their goods to Londoners who then would seek to sell it on and make profit their way. But a fair 
was a place where someone from Oxford could say come and for the duration of the fair sell their goods openly and directly. Fairs were profitable for everyone concerned. And this was why Rahiri wanted one up in Smithfield. He would pay for the franchise, the king's happy. But then he could charge traders a pretty price to make him happy in order to set up a stall there. And they would pay because then they could sell their goods direct to the customers of London without the London middleman markup. And so there was usually big crowds to get a bargain and the customers were happy. Yes, it was all a tad more complex than this, but this explanation will do. And because, ultimately, a fair was a thing where the existing rules and regulations of the city were kind of suspended, it was very natural in the minds of everyone turning up to go, hey, normal rules do not apply here, and treat fairs like great big parties and celebrations, filled with noise, raucous crowds, and rule-breaking behaviour. Now I'm dating the start of this fair to around 1133 or so, but it could have been established a little earlier, and appears to have been principally used by drapers and merchants. Some say the street up in Smithfield today called Cloth Fair is a throwback to this earlier specialisation of the fair. But to be honest, that's not important. What is important is that this is the origin of one of London's most important yearly social events, the Great St. Bartholomew's Fair. From now and for the next 500 years or so, this yearly institution would become the wildest, the most passionate street party London ever saw. Modern street celebrations like today's brilliant Notting Hill I'm afraid they are dwarfed in comparison to St. Bartholomew's Fair, which eventually ended up extending to becoming a two-week-long festival of hilarity, misrule, drunkenness and wild behaviour. Indeed, about 400 years after it was started, the London-born playwright Ben Johnson would write a play about it, and in which he included the words of a stallholder shouting out to a passing woman, quote, What do you lack? What do you buy, pretty mistress? A fine hobby hoss to make your son a tilter? A drum to make him a soldier? A fiddle to make him a reveller? What is do you lack? Little dogs for your daughters or babies, male and female? Unquote. In response to this excellent sales patter, a rather puritanical character advised the woman, quote, Look not towards them, hearken not. The place is Smithfield, or the field of Smiths. The wares are the wares of the devil, and the whole fair is the shop of Satan. Unquote. Is it just me, or does that sound like one hell of a party? Yet the second significant event in London during this period was of a less pleasurable experience. Sometime between 11.32 and 11.36, London suffered another great fire, the third since the Normans had arrived, and at least the sixth I've mentioned on this podcast. We have some issues precisely dating this one. It may have been one huge conflagration, or it may have been two or three large ones, but because of the difficulties, I'm just going to say I'm going with the consensus and stating the fire took place in 1133, 
erupting on May 14th, the Feast of Pentecost. The Pentecost blaze was said to be staggering in terms of size and scale. Moving rapidly, it was said to have caused arguably the greatest amount of damage to the city yet recorded. It roared through the still being rebuilt St. Paul's Cathedral, going as far as St. Bride's one way and London Bridge the other way, and possibly even reaching all the way to Aldgate. It was devastating, and especially horrendous was the supposed damage to London Bridge itself. It is said the Inferno caught the bridge and seriously undermined it. Again, art reports are varied and unsure, and into that uncertainty, a degree of exaggeration has been allowed to roam freely, I feel. One chronicler of the time said St. Paul's was burned down again, but the evidence we have suggests that was not the case. And another chronicler says London Bridge was effectively put out of use from 1133 for the next 30 years, but I don't think the city relied on ferries for three decades. I really don't. Whatever is the case, the Pentecost fire caused massive damages and reduced revenues and earnings across London and was a traumatic and horrendous development for the city. It now had to rebuild, which would cost money, and London was already having a hard time financially. Oh, and one minor point from me, but I think it's important. The Pentecost fire of 1133 has spawned a persistent historical rumour that has abided since, that the fire was caused in the home of Gilbert Beckett, the father of Thomas Beckett. This claim has been quoted in so many books I've read and is taken obviously seriously. However, allow me just point out, it started because of two comments made at the time by contemporary chroniclers about Gilbert Beckett. One called William of Canterbury specifically said that Gilbert Beckett's fortunes were damaged and, quote, weakened by the frequent fires of the citizens, unquote. And another contemporary chronicler says that the Beckett estate was severely reduced, quote, by frequent fires and other unfortunate attacks of things that were not moderately attenuated, unquote. But these refer to fires that actually took place around 1130 and 1132, especially two fires in April 1132, and not the Pentecost fire of 1133. And those quotes suggest other people caused the fires. Gilbert's investments were damaged. Now, there are a few slightly later writers who directly say the Pentecost fire was started in the household of Gilbert Beckett, but in my opinion, they are notoriously inaccurate. And I think, given that I still keep running across the accounts of the Beckett family that actually quote the nonsense to, that suggests Matilda Beckett had been impregnated by a Saracen, and this is how Thomas Beckett was conceived, I'm gonna say that the claim about the fire is along the same lines. And that for the record, I believe Gilbert Beckett did not cause the Pentecost fire of 1133. And that it damaged a lot of London, but it did not burn down St. Paul's again. And nor did it destroy London Bridge. But it did mean revenues in London were significantly reduced. And this leads us to the main event of the period, 1130 to 1135, and ties everything in this chapter neatly together 
with a great big bow. In 1130, but really it could have been any time between 1130 and 11.34 or so, Henry I granted the City of London a new charter. And the terms of it are so generous that it has led many historians to claim that Henry I did not issue this charter at all, that the charter he wrote was followed closely by another one issued by the next guy on the throne of England, a man called Stephen. And because of the political nonsense about to take place in England at this time, London backdated Stephen's charter and said it came from the much more stable reign of Henry I. This debate is huge, and it really started with the work of three historians, Christopher Brooke, Gillian Kerr, and Susan Reynolds, who in the 1970s put forward the idea that the Charter of Henry I was a forgery at worst, or the misattributed Charter of King Stephen at best. There has been learned pushback from historians the like of Warren Hollister, who maintains that the Charter was indeed legitimate. It is a fascinating and ongoing historical debate, and in all ways, I will defer to the specialist historians of this exact era to decide its outcome, finding the cases of both to be pretty weighty and very informative. At its heart, we have serious problems, however. The original version of this document is long lost. There were, and do exist, a lot of copies but not one copy that exists is free from editing, omission, or corruption. And that leaves the way open to cast grave doubt as to the Charter's authenticity, and allows many claims to be made, such as that Henry didn't write a Charter, but Stephen did, or that Henry wrote a Charter, but that the Londoners simply exaggerated what it said it contained, and it eventually took the Charter of Henry II to rein the city in. Now, to understand just why it was suspected, so guess what? We're going to have to have a look at the Charter. No, seriously, we do. As the Charter given to London also reveals insight to life in London in this era. So what follows is me quoting one version of the Charter of Henry I. As I said, the exact wording may not match other versions due to the editing and omissions and all of that, but the gist of what they say does match. And so to begin, in the words of King Henry I himself, quote, Know ye that I have granted to my citizens of London to hold Middlesex to farm for three hundred pounds upon a compt of them and their heirs, unquote. So this opening line of the Charter is actually the one that raises the most eyebrows. It seems so nice and innocent. Why do historians get upset about a farm? Well, to understand the term farm back in the 12th century, it, you had got to get it had a much more precise definition within legal and taxation circles. How best to describe this? If the king was due to collect the taxes of some hypothetical village out on the edge of Cornwall, say, he could send his tax collectors all the way out there to Cornwall and collect the taxes and then have them come all the way back to him. Or he could allow someone local lease out the right to collect in those taxes. This leasing process was known as to farm those taxes. And we today, still in English, will occasionally use the term farming out to describe how people can raise monies or do jobs. And this is where the term comes from. It wasn't just taxation it covered. It could be a right that could be farmed out, or a property, or even a jurisdiction. 
Basically, farms was a nice way the crown could make money because the lease to hold those rights came at a price. This was the fixed amounts you'd pay to the crown to have the right to farm that revenue stream. So, going back to a hypothetical, if the right to farm out in the wilds of Cornwall was £10, you would pay the crown £10 per year, and any excesses you made from the local taxes, you basically kept. Of course, the crown retained the right to vary many farm rates yearly, and the whole thing gets wonderfully complicated. And once again, a reminder, I am only offering a simplification, and there are far more complex medieval accounting details to this, but... On the whole, this is what farming meant. And that brings us from the hypothetical example to the real-life Charter of London. We know that London's farm in 1130 was a tad over £525 per year. This was actually more than London could afford, especially after the impact of the fire. Revenues were down, which meant available funds for tax were down. We know that the tax collectors were unable to meet that £525 burden. So the first thing this charter does is reduce the tax burden of London significantly from £525 per annum to just £300. I mean, they, it's almost halved. This is what causes several historians to go, wait, why would King Henry just reduce his revenues so? He could give them remission to their existing debt without having to suddenly cut the future taxes so drastically. This causes red flags for some. And then the charter says, quote, said citizen shall place a sheriff whom they will of themselves, unquote. Now, one of the duties the royal sheriffs of Henry I did was collect the royal revenues. Simply put, the sheriffs of Henry collected the taxes of Henry, and the sheriffs of Henry were appointed by Henry. And here is Henry I now not only reducing London's tax burden by nearly half, he's also saying London can now elect their own sheriffs. So not only has London got Henry I to agree to slash his taxes, they've also got him to agree they should be responsible for collecting those taxes, at least temporarily. So for the sceptics, this, this is a red flag. And here is where they look at Henry I and his life and go, yeah, of course he did, mate. And the suspicion is that this entire charter was a fabrication begins. However, the likes of Hollister have pointed out that A, all this charter actually did was restore the farm of London back to its previous total, and B, he just gives them their right to elect their own tax collectors. And why would he be so generous? Well, Henry I was in need of something at the time. He wanted his daughter to take the throne, Matilda. And while all-powerful, Henry was in need of approval and goodwill from all quarters across his kingdom, as having a queen was utterly unprecedented. So yes, goes a rebuttal. Henry I would be inclined to give London this deal, to keep them happy. Was there more to it than this? Yes, of course there was. And the next line of the charter was a big clue as to what that was. Henry said that Londoners, quote, shall place whomsoever and such a one as they will off themselves for the keeping of the pleas of the crown and of the pleadings of the same none shall be justice over the same men of London. And the citizens of London shall not plead without the walls of London for any plea, unquote. 
Now, I said in the last chapter how Henry I had extended royal control over the legal system. And proliferating around England during this time, and before as it begun during the reign of King William Rufus, was a role called the Justicars, or the King's Justices. Justicars were an appointment that came across to London as an imposition. They were the king's authority over the legal system across England. And here we see London was told it would have its own, and all citizens of the city would come under this man. So this line and the earlier ones tell us London was free to elect its own justicar, offering them a degree of judicial independence, which is kind of a big thing. This charter is giving London financial, administrative and judicial independence from the crown. And these freedoms did not stop at this. The charter goes on to say, quote, And be they free from Scot and Lot and Danegild, and of all murder, and none of them shall wage battle, unquote. Now, a translation is needed here. Scot and Lot and Danegild is a term that appears in several medieval documents. It's a general reference to taxation upon folks, and Danegilds themselves, which came from our earlier Anglo-Saxon era, they were actually kept alive as a revenue stream by the kings of England until 1162. But it doesn't matter here as London is made exempt from them. The term free from all murder, well, the most accurate translation would be free from murderum. And if you can remember, I mentioned this back in the chapters about William the Conqueror, the murderum fine was a penalty introduced by that king back during the early days of English resistance to his occupation. The law said that if a murder was committed and the murderer was not brought to justice within a week, the whole community where the murder took place would be fined a staggering amount of silver. This murderum frine was now lifted from London. Oh, and the none of them shall wage battle part? That refers to an exemption for the Londoners to avoid the practice of trial by combat. The charter goes on to clarify this, quote, and if any one of the citizens shall be impleaded concerning the pleas of the crown, the man of London shall discharge himself by his oath, which shall be adjudged within the city, unquote. So rather than decide if the matter was to be solved by trial by combat, a Londoner could now swear a holy oath that he was innocent, along with a set number of witnesses, and that would be enough. See what I mean about it being generous? And it goes on, quote, And none shall lodge within the walls, neither of my household, nor any other, nor lodging delivered by force, unquote. And here, the King of England, and all future kings of England supposedly, were forbidden to station men in London. You could, as a king, own a house there, but you could not force yourself upon the city. Consider the journey we've made over the last few chapters. Under William the Conqueror, two wooden stockades were built, two baileys, in which Lord de Mandeville had used to oversee the armed occupation of London. Under this charter, that was forbidden. Wow. Of course, keep in mind, you still had three castles dominating the London skyline, the White Tower of London, Baynard's Castle, and Montefilcher's Castle just to the north. But still, you get the point. Quote, and all men of London shall be quit and free, and all their goods throughout England and the ports of the sea 
off and from all toll and passage and lestage and all other customs, unquote. So this is a huge concession to London merchants right here. There was going to be rejoicing at that one. And then it goes on to say, quote, the churches and barons and citizens shall and may peaceably and quietly have and hold their soaks with all their customs, so that strangers shall be lodged in the soaks, shall give custom to none but to him to whom the soak appertains, or to his officer whom he shall put there. Unquote. And here the king places London in charge of all the affairs of London hold their soaks with all customs. Basically saying, hey, you know the way you've been running London since the era of Ethelred of Mercia? Yeah, yeah. you got to keep doing that and no one can naysay you. This was a awesome deal. And the charter goes on. It actually says, quote, And a man of London shall not be abjured in immersements of money, but of 100 shillings, I speak of pleas which appertain to money, and further... There shall be no more miskenning in the hustings, nor in the folk moot, nor in any other pleas within the city, unquote. Now, this is interesting because this line is clearly referring to things that really annoy the residents of London category. Miskenning was the name given to messing up on your precise legal paperwork. See, it wasn't enough to just say guilty or not guilty when accused of something back then. There was a correct formula as to how one made a plea to a court. And if you messed it up, ouch. If you were lucky, your miskenning, as it was known, led to a fine. If you were unlucky, the case would be kicked up to a higher court. Or you may even find the case automatically defaults to the other side. It was a common mistake, and in a document of this time called Leges Henrici Primi, it specifically says London was prone to chronic miskenning, and that was probably caused by an Anglo-Saxon legal code meeting Danish and Norman immigrants in large numbers, and probably caused a large build-up of resentment. So hey, look it, miskenning is no longer a thing, or at least the fine for it was lifted. And look what else is based upon and where it's really focused upon. The folk moots and the court of hustings. London was recognised as having its own hustings court. Quote, The hustings may sit once in a week, that is to say on Monday, and I will cause my citizens to have their lands, promises, bonds and debts within the city and without, and I will do them right by the law of the city of the lands of which they shall complain to, unquote. The charter does go on, but in a nutshell, after 30 years on the throne, Henry I gave London one hell of a deal, it seems. And it could be he was seeking to gain London's approval over the Matilda issue, or maybe the sceptics are right, and this was the work of later hands misattributed to Henry I. But there may have been something else going on right now that could well have influenced the old king's thought on this matter. And that was the rise of the communes. This is kind of a big thing, and that word commune is going to become increasingly important over the next few years. And no, we're not talking about the idea of hippies living together in some new age retreat. Medieval communes 
was something far more militant. At their most basic levels, medieval communes were private and voluntary associations of citizens of Europe's emerging urban population centres. The aim was for urban communities to gain greater powers, powers of self-governance, and this aim brought them into conflict with the existing powers of their regions, conflicts which could last centuries. In some ways, communes were urban populations rebelling against societies that were based on rural feudalism. At a most basic level, it was residents of cities declaring their own political agency and sometimes instigating rebellion or actual war about this upon the existing political status quo to free themselves from the old way of doing things and gain for themselves this agency which allowed them to create political systems more suited to their own needs. The movement had begun in the chaos of Italy at this time, but was soon being witnessed in Spain, Germany, Flanders and France. And for somewhere like London, oh, this was right up their street. What? A movement dedicated to granting increased agency to towns and cities. Going on around a city like London. Talk about lighting the blue touch paper, right? Now, in Italy, the proprietor's opportunity that the cities were able to exploit was only made possible by the long investiture contest between political and religious power in the region. This conflict represented a starting point because the communal movement would not have been able to grow had there not been a division and struggle between the papacy and the Holy Roman Empire. And across Europe, it was always the case. When there was instability, communes could grow. And so this was going on in the background and had been noticed and witnessed by those in England at the time, including the king. Henry I had more than enough on his plate right now. The idea that London could possibly be inspired to do what Rome was doing at the time and its citizens were just about to expel a pope and take control of running their own affairs, yeah, let's not do that. Let's prevent that from happening, shall we? Let's make a deal that keeps them sweet. Let's offer them a golden deal, one that will ensure their loyalty to the state. So ultimately, I find myself gravitating towards those who believe the Charter of Henry I was fundamentally as it was presented. Not enough to say with certainty this is the case, but I'm actually inclined towards it. And so the deal was made and the charter was issued. But as I said, London was finding its voice, its boldness, the ferocity of old and this charter helped that little ember of independent spirit within London long extinguished by the need for pragmatic realism in the face of brutal early Norman regimes, seems to have slowly gathered strength during the 1120s and the 1130s. And before the end of the next decade, it would become a raging inferno. The anarchy was coming, and London was going to make sure it was right in the heart of it. And I will end it there. Thank you for listening. I do so hope you enjoyed it. Thank you for your words of support and kind donations on the Buy Me A Coffee website, those who made them. 
and I'll be back next week for chapter 62, I believe it is, of the story of London. I'll see you then. Thank you. Bye.